Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's uh, discussion, Peace Through School Choice, Examining the Evidence. I'm Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom uh, here at the Cato Institute. Uh, today's event, uh, I think, is uh, somewhat ripped from the headlines. Actually, we're mainly having it in response to headlines. Um, in education, you know, if you follow education very closely, you know kind of the big thing uh, or uh, debates over the last year and a half or so in particular have been sort of very heated conflicts over uh, questions about how you, for instance, teach about race. Do you use something called critical race theory? Of course, we have big debates about what actually constitutes critical race theory, but these are things that have sort of caused meltdowns in school board meetings and uh, in, in, in headlines and on news. Uh, we've had big debates about LGBTQ issues, ranging from what pronouns uh, teachers may use or required to use, how students address each other, uh, about transgender students in sports. And of course, all of this has been sort of dropped into a toxic stew of COVID and COVID lockdowns of schools, and then very heated often debates uh, and disagreements about whether or not um, kids should be required to wear masks, whether it should be optional. Um, and so what we're seeing has been a big um, uptick in animosity in public schooling. But this is not actually something new. It may be a new wave, but uh, it's not a new phenomenon that people get into often very heated disagreements about what public schools do, what they teach. Uh, we've been talking about this at the Center for Educational Freedom for a very long time. Uh, and since roughly 2005-06 school year, uh, we've kept something called the Public Schooling Battle Map, which those of you who know me or know the Center for Educational Freedom, you know I promote this all the time. I feel like there should be some bell that rings whenever I say it. You know, a little ding, 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 like in uh, talk radio when they're saying something they like to repeat over and over again. But the public schooling battle map exists to illustrate how public schooling uh, can cause people to uh, enter into sort of zero sum conflict within their communities and their states. Uh, at this point, the map has about 3000 values and identity based conflicts. Those are very personal conflicts. Um, if you want to get even deeper into this, by the way, uh, libertarianism.org, which is part of Cato, put out a book in uh, a few years ago called Critics of State Education. A lot of it from the 1850s in England of people warning that if you go to a public schooling system, that you will have very uh, painful conflicts over whose values get taught. Uh, I'll say more about the argument, the theory behind we may have more peace and even more togetherness if we were to move to school choice. But first, I want to introduce our fabulous panelists that we have today. I'm just going to give you very short bios for them. You can certainly look them up on the internet, but both have tremendously deep experience and knowledge in education, and in particular, how the structure of education systems uh, can either build up cohesion or break it down. Uh, our first panelist is Charlie Glenn. He's Professor Emeritus of Education Leadership and Policy Studies at Boston University. He's author of really the seminal book, seminal book, Myth of the Common Schools, which you can see here. It's a, my version or copy is well-worn, tattered, got lots of notes on it. Uh, and he may be the nation's foremost expert on the structure of education here and abroad and how it's fostered peace or conversely conflict. 
Also with us is Ashley Rogers Berner. She's the director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University and author of arguably the essential book on pluralism education. Here's my copy of that. It's a slightly newer <laughs> book. Uh, it has, though, lots of nice tabs, and I just haven't beaten it up quite as much as uh, Charles's book. Um, but the book is Pluralism in American Education, No One Way to School. That's an essential read if this is an issue that's of importance to you, and it should be important to everyone. And if you're watching, it's almost certainly of importance to you. Now, our panelists will furnish some terrific insights to start us off. Uh, I will also speak a little to start us off. Um, but we want this mainly to be out about answering your questions, taking your comments. You can even disagree with each other, uh, with the speakers, with other commenters. In order to submit your questions, there, whatever platform you're on has a way to do it. Some of them will be clear. You'll see a box where you can type in what you want to say. Uh, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, you can use hashtag CatoCEF. That's C-A-T-O-C-E-F. But we really want this event to be much more about your questions and comments than our prepared remarks. But we do want to sort of lay some uh, basic information and theory out there. So before Charlie and Ashley give you a whole lot of the really meat and potatoes about how we've seen uh, education systems structured to lead to peace or to conflict, let me give you just a bit of the theory behind the idea that choice, as opposed to public schooling, would foster peace and even potentially more sort of togetherness. Uh, the general idea of public schooling has been that by bringing together diverse people that can be of diverse race, religion, values, uh, economic class, but by bringing them together and teaching them common things, maybe a common language, common values, common history, a common national identity, uh, they will become more enlightened uh, and they will become uh, unified. Uh, as Charlie, I think, is probably going to talk about in more depth, uh, or maybe Ashley or both, um, this general idea is what motivated people like Benjamin Rush, who if you're from Philadelphia or Pennsylvania, you probably know him. He was a founder, very influential founder. Uh, and he wrote some of the early work in the United States and the early United States about how uh, generally a public schooling system could help to unify, unify diverse people. Um, probably more famous in the education realm is Horace Mann, the so-called father of the common schools, who was active, most active in the 1830s, 1840s in Massachusetts. He talked about how public schools could do these things while creating virtuous citizens. So bringing people together and teaching them what is the right way to be a citizen of Massachusetts and the United States. And so this was the general idea that you would bring these diverse people together and sort of form them uh, as a cohesive, somewhat common whole. Um, the problem is this works out, it, it may be intuitive, it may feel right, but it's a little bit simplistic and it turns out to be quite flawed. What we found historically is people won't simply give up the things that are most important to their identity, their religion, um, aspects of their family culture, their race, lots of important things, and that they will often end up fighting to make sure that theirs are the values and histories that are taught in the schools that everybody is supposed to benefit from. And so it actually fosters division and conflict more than togetherness. We see this in many instances throughout history. Again, Charlie and Ashley will give you a lot more of this. 
but you can think of it as Catholics who are unhappy being forced into facto private or Protestant public schools through a large part of our history. Those of you uh, may have read Inherit the Wind, probably know about the Scopes Monkey Trial in the 1920s, about whether or not religion will be controlling in public schools. Will it have any place in public schools? This was about the teaching of evolution or whether that should be legal, whether creationism should be required. And if you go to the 1960s, there's the Ocean Hill-Brownsville battle over who controls neighborhood public schools that may serve predominantly unique communities, uh, in this case, African-American and Puerto Rican communities, who should be in charge of those schools. Um, choice, at least theoretically, would foster peace by letting people get what they want, what they think is most valuable, without having to defeat their neighbors to get those things, which is what public schooling kind of sets up. And some battles are particularly zero-sum, and it just happens that we have seen one of the clearest zero-sum battles in some time, I think, that everybody's familiar with in the last year or so, which is the question of masking kids in schools. You cannot reconcile somebody who says the only way they feel safe enough to have their child in school is if everyone wears a mask, so not just their child, but all students. You can't reconcile that with people say they want a school in which the parents decide whether or not the child wears a mask. You can have one or the other, but you can't have both policies in one school. If you have school choice, you can choose different schools with different policies, allowing diverse people to get what they think is best. Um, one last question is, and we'll get into this again a lot more detail, is but wouldn't this lead to balkanization? Wouldn't this sort of cause people to split apart in their own little silos? And I think that the historical evidence is no, not really. We have strong incentives to sort of assimilate, to be part of a broader culture. It's easier, we're more comfortable living in a, a society where we are familiar with the surrounding culture, where we adopt a lot of the surrounding culture, where we speak the language, where we have similar norms to other people that live with us. We can more successfully conduct business when we, and when we work with people who are different than we are, but we don't want to have to sacrifice the things that are personally most important to our identities and our values in order to do those things. So choice can actually lead to greater cohesion, first by breaking down this need to engage in political warfare to get what we think is most important, but also could set the conditions to achieve sort of cross-cutting identities where we overcome some divisions by things that bring us together. A, a theoretical example is people who commonly or share the desire for a religious school, but maybe of a different race, choose a religious school, and then that religious component creates new identities that that sort of overcome, or at least are more powerful than divisions that may exist on race or class or something like that. So that's all the theory, but now let's get to a lot more detail and a lot more uh, meat on the bones of this. And so I hand it over now to Charlie Glenn. Okay, thank you, Neil. Um... I, th I thought it would be useful if I talked very concretely about uh, several different uh, ways in which this has played out. And then those who want to uh, ask me about any of them will be able to do that later on in the question period. Uh, the, the first would have to do with, with my career as a state official more than 40 years ago now. The second, uh, my research in history and 
educational policy that's resulted in quite a few books. And the third, my, my advising role in Ukraine in 2014 and 2015. So let me talk about each of those briefly. Um, as a state official in the, um, oh goodness, uh, <laughs> 1970s and 80s in Massachusetts, responsible for educational equity, one of my responsibilities was to seek to ensure that schools were racially integrated, that kids were not divided by race. And we thought initially in the, in the arrogance of the times that we as government could simply decide where kids ought to go to school and achieve thereby a positive social effects. Well, everyone knows the kind of heated resistance that that, that produced, particularly in Boston, um, crisis, people throwing rocks at school buses. Two of my own children were attending Boston schools in those days, and uh, they had rocks thrown at their buses as well. Um, over time, we came to see that there was nothing to be gained by simply ignoring the fact that parents had deep concerns about where their children went to school. And then instead, we could put that concern to use as a way to achieve racial integration at the same time that we made parents feel more deeply committed to the schools that children attended. What we did was to do surveys to find out what kinds of things different parents wanted their child's school to be emphasizing, and then to work with the schools to encourage them to decide which of those emphases, whether it was, for, for example, uh, teaching in, in two languages. Five of my own children attended a bilingual school and one of my granddaughters is attending one of those in Boston right now. Um, some parents want that. Other parents would like a strong emphasis on art. Other parents a strong emphasis on science exploration and so forth and so on. And by uh, making schools have different themes and uh, letting those themes be, be the basis for teachers choosing which schools they wanted to work in, we were able to satisfy parents and put schools on a, um, on a road toward being more coherent and more uh, conscious about what they were trying to achieve. So in more than a dozen other cities, and eventually in Boston also, we put in place such school choice programs based upon decisions made by parents in ways that uh, satisfied the parents, but also achieved racial integration among schools. After I left government, and as I thought more about those issues, I became convinced that there was no point in restricting that to ordinary public schools. So I became a supporter of charter schools, then of vouchers, educational savings accounts, homeschooling, any kind of thing that makes it possible. Uh, Um, it looks like uh, Charlie has frozen. 
Uh, Ashley, while we wait for Charlie to come back, do you want to talk a little bit more about this? Uh, what you were going to talk about? Maybe you can connect it to what Charlie was in the middle of. Oh, wait, he may be back. Charlie, are you back? Uh, yeah. We lost you for a minute. Yeah. Uh, aha. Maybe I was just stammering. That's what I do occasionally. Um, can you hear me now? We hear you now. Okay, great. Second example is historical. You know, the radical phase of the French Revolution uh, wanted to reshape humanity, wanted to reshape the French people, uh, persuading children and, and their parents to abandon all of the loyalties that they had to their language, their local languages, their local customs, their to the Catholic Church or to any other belief, and instead have a loyalty exclusively to the state. And uh, the, the Dutch um, uh, began seeking to do that as well in the early 19th century. And um, the uh, uh, result was that, that the, um, they experienced increasing Catholic parents often resisted the kind of bland moralistic Protestantism that the Dutch schools were promoting. And many Protestants resisted those schools because they did not present the whole, the whole gospel, the whole truth that they wanted their children exposed to. And so uh, resistance grew. You had uh, many schools started by parents illegally meeting in barns and other places with the police cracking down on them. You had thousands of parents, particularly Orthodox Protestant parents, leaving the country entirely, emigrating to North America, ending up in Michigan and Iowa, where we now have, of course, uh, uh, Calvin College and Dort College and other institutions started by those immigrants. And then most significantly, uh, the Catholic southern part of the country simply split off in 1830 because there was such a deep opposition to the, the uh, way in which uh, uh, parents were not being able to have their children taught in Catholic schools. And that became Belgium. And Belgium is the only country, as far as I know, in the world whose very existence is based upon uh, a desire for parental choice of the kind of schooling their children would have. And then let me mention my third example. Um, uh, you all know, I think, about what happened in, um, in U Ukraine in recent years. The eastern part of Ukraine has largely been Russian speaking and the western part largely Ukrainian speaking. And, and the eastern part uh, often more oriented toward Moscow, the Western part more toward Western Europe. Uh, in 2013, 2014, the then president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, under pressure from Moscow, canceled a decision by the Ukrainian parliament to in fact create a pact with the European Union. And as a result, thousands upon thousands of, of individuals uh, began demonstrating against the government. Eventually, he fled the country, fled to Moscow, 
and a new democratic uh, gov government uh, eventually under uh, 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 Petro Poroshenko took office, again, Western-oriented. Uh, that became the basis for Russia to seize Crimea and to support the, um, the rebellions in several Eastern areas of the country. And of course, more recently, the excuse for Russia to actually invade the country. In 2014, a Belgian colleague and I were asked to come advise the, the new democratic government of Ukraine about reforming their education system. And we made several visits and also uh, uh, we had meetings with them uh, in uh, Western Europe as well as we worked on helping them to redraft their education laws. One of the things they had done early in this new movement was to say that all schools had to teach uh, as a language of instruction had to use Ukrainian. And my friend Jan and I were very concerned about that. We said it would be much wiser to let that be a matter of local decision so that parents could be helping to decide what language their children would receive their first instruction in. And then in schools that have Ukrainian as their first language, Russian should be taught as a second language. In schools with Russian as their first language, Ukrainian should be their second language. Well, unfortunately, we were too late because uh, although actually it wasn't implemented in, in a uniform way, the very fact that that decision had been made by the government served as one of the major reasons for, for um, some of the eastern areas of the country to rise in, in a rebellion. And I think there will be no, no basis of a lasting peace in Ukraine until it's recognized that both language groups can live peacefully together. That, that's why it's, by the way, very significant that uh, the present president of Ukraine is a native Russian speaker who also speaks Ukrainian. That's just the way it ought to be. And, and again, Ukrainian, Ukraine's an example of the way in which peace can be achieved through uh, being flexible about what will be the basis of schooling in ways that respond to the priorities that parents have. Let me stop at that point and I can return to any of these later if, if it's useful. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, we do have questions coming in, which we're going to get to soon. Remember, if you have a question and you're on Facebook or Twitter, use hashtag Cato CEF. But if you're on another platform, you can, uh, there's usually a box you can type it into. And so now I will hand it over to Ashley. And you're, you're muted, I think. I am so sorry. I am very standard in the modern era. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's great to be with you at Cato and see you, Neil. And it's always a pleasure and a privilege to be with Charlie, who taught me everything I know about international education policy. And so just a brief word about educational pluralism and what it means and what it does and why it's important. And then a little bit about the research. So 
education policy is a complicated business. I have never made education policy, but I've studied it and I work for help run an education policy institute. And I don't, I just want to say it up front that I don't think any democratic school system perfectly solves the goals of education, which is, you know, social mobility, academic achievement, and citizenship formation in a democracy. So nobody gets it totally and completely right. But the reason why I think it's important to look at other models around the world and to look at our own history, as Charlie does in his book about the myth of the common school, is because when we're raised in one country, we just accept and adapt the frameworks for doing business that we're born into. So in our country, for a hundred years, we've had this extreme binary of public schools and private schools, and now there's charter schools, which are also public schools, but somewhere you know privately managed at times by nonprofits. But we have this binary of public schools means one thing, the district school, and private schools are everything else. And we know that it's inequitable because we know that well-off families can move to a quote better school district or to enroll their kids in private school and low-income families don't have that ability so this binary breaks down very quickly when we start to ask about equity but what's really important here is even the language of school choice is essentially asking for an exception to the norm of one provider, AKA the district school. Now that's a long history to how we got there, but it's been that way for a hundred years. And when we look around the world at how democracies frame their educational systems, it's entirely different. And that's the description that Charlie and I have worked on that Charlie led called educational pluralism. Now educational pluralism is simply a different way to structure democratic education. And there are two key pieces of it that I just want to play out a little bit. The first is about the structure and the second is about the content. And they're both very important for social cohesion and also for parental rights. So the structure, educational pluralism assumes that schooling cannot be neutral with respect to values. There's no way to select a textbook or hire people or attract families or even create a disciplinary code without drawing on some kind of normative values. It's impossible to design education to be neutral. So having accepted that, the next step is simply to fund a variety of institutions. So the Netherlands, um, one of our favorite examples, 36 different kinds of schools on equal footing. Montessori, Jewish Orthodox, uh, Jewish Reform, uh, Catholic, Islamic, secular, 30% of the kids go to what we would consider district schools. This is the norm around the world. Indonesia, Israel, Sweden, Belgium, France, Australia, they all have different models. The funding structure is different, but the premise is the same. We fund a variety of schools. This is not necessarily considered school choice. This is by design. This is pluralism. So that's the structure. The content is equally important. The content of instruction. What are we actually delivering for kids? Here, the premise is different. It is that unlike other choices we make, decisions that we make, 
education is not just about the individual. It isn't just an individual good. Why not? Because it matters to me that your child knows in our country, the three branches of government. It matters to you that my children know how to read and function in adult society, right? We're all in this together. It is a, there's a common good principle here. And that is why the most successful pluralistic countries have curricular frameworks and guidelines that all kids have to study. And so, you know, I just served on a board um, panel for Alberta, Alberta, Canada, for example. They fund homeschooling, they fund Inuit schools, they have charter schools, they have Catholic schools, but yet the common body of knowledge is, is meant to be common across all of them. And they have a common assessment and assessments are really important. Assessments that are knowledge based, not just the kinds of assessments we have in this country that are skills oriented. It is about, you know, essentially a kind of a, a liberal approach, liberal arts education. And this works very, very well for actually for equity. The OECD's research shows how important a knowledge building curriculum is. So I'm just going to stop for a second on those two things. So there's the structure that is diverse and the content that is not lockstep, but it's much more similar. The Ministry of Education provides curricular frameworks. So you do get very strange situations as in the Netherlands, and I'll just give my favorite example, the Netherlands and the UK both fund creationist schools. And now that would set the hair on fire of many Americans. They fund creationist schools. However, kids in those schools also have to demonstrate mastery of evolutionary theory as a theory. So that's considered part of what you need to know to navigate adult life. You don't have to believe it's true, but you have to demonstrate competence in it. So the school's values and how they interpret content is distinctive, but the content is also very relatively stable. And there are lots of nuances and lots of lots of variations here, but but that's that's the in my in my interpret interpretation of the data, that's the best of both worlds. Why? Because you have a strong school culture the ethos of the school, which we know makes a material difference in student outcomes for the better. There's a strong, stable school culture. This is, we see this across all countries and there's a academically robust curriculum. Now, I don't wanna pretend that this is easy in the United States. Both of these things, the plural structure and a robust knowledge-rich curriculum are countercultural to some extent. These happen on two different historical trajectories, and I'm happy to talk about them. Our institute at Hopkins works on both. We work a lot on the content of education and helping all schools, school sector agnostic, right? Helping district schools, state, you know, district schools, charter schools, and private schools develop more robust instructional frameworks and so on. But they're both difficult moves, and they push against one or the other side of the political spectrum. So there are, there's a strong commitment by some folks in our country that only the district can deliver public education. Only the district is legitimate. We have to push against that and say, well, no, most democracies, that's not the case. And it used not to be the case with us. Um, on the other hand, we have many school choice advocates who 
want to leave the quality measures completely to the schools and the parents. And from my perspective, that's highly risky. There's not a lot of evidence that that it leads inevitably to a high quality. So both of these moves are countercultural, but together, I think they really have worked well for families all around the world. It's very much the norm. And, and it's quite fun to be in conversations in the United States in which one can say, well, I think we need more of what the Netherlands has. Um, uh, now, now, back to Neil's original point, it's not the case that this diminishes all conflict. Um, there certainly are conflicts on some of the issues that, that uh, Neil talked about going on currently around the world in different countries, and I'm happy to talk about that. But um, in essence, I've become persuaded that a uniform structure is going to lead to the bid for control that means other people's values don't matter. The minority cultures, whether the minority culture is Catholic or secular, atheist, Jehovah's Witness, doesn't have a place. Um, and, and also that the completely agnostic view about curriculum is not does not work well for the kind of equity and civic formation that we'd like to see. So I'm going to stop right there. Thanks for thank you again for inviting me. Great. Thank you. Um, I will say that there's probably some disagreement on this panel. Uh, I am a little bit more on that group of school choice people who think that it's much better that we leave decisions about quality to schools, individual educators, and not meaning individuals as single people, but as opposed to government deciding what it is schools should teach. Um, I think that we are better off when we leave that to educators and uh, families freely interacting. I won't get too much into that though, because we have questions from the audience that actually get to those points. So I'll let you guys uh, respond to those questions. Um, uh, but I'll also say, just to sort of stake out my position, if we could move to a, a model of pluralism the way that Ashley has uh, framed it and as Charlie's talked about, it would be a huge improvement over, I think, where we are right now. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go right now to questions and comments rather than some of my own uh, because we have so many and some of them get right to these points. Um, I guess I'll, what I'll do to, you know, just keep things exciting and fresh is I will go back and forth to who I asked the question to first, and then I'll chime in if I feel like that I need to add any of my viewpoints uh, just to get it in there or, you know, because, you know, I think I'm right and everybody's wrong, which is usually the case. Anyway, so let's get to this first question. We've had a few um, that are along this line. And I think it gets a bit to one of my concerns about uh, having government decide what the common content should be. Um, and that is a move toward uniformity. So um, as we have an anonymous uh, person, so they didn't give their names on uh, social media, which is absolutely fine. But they said, as long as any school remains funded in part by public dollars, Following government mandate seems to be the status quo, thereby resulting um, in freedom that's more superficial than meaningful. How can schools receiving public funds and offer any true diversity of policy? And, and what it gets to, I think, is in particular this concern that when you have one funder, you ultimately get homogeneity imposed on your choices. 
And Ashley, maybe you can go first because you talked a bit about how this is balanced in other countries. So how do you avoid that? That the that's a wonderful question. That's absolutely the right question to ask. And I'm Charlie, you may have some thoughts as well. But um, first of all, I don't think it's the case that having a government funder exclusively one funder leads to homogeneity quite the opposite it is you know the the these schools the the the, the state in these in these constructs can't override unless it's deemed nefarious for other reasons the kind of ethos of the school and so back to this notion of the netherlands creationist schools as long as the children learn the content that is uh, mandated by the state, they can learn it as untrue. Um, I'll give another example. Most OECD countries require comparative religion and ethics every year. So even if you are in a Jewish state-funded school, you still will learn what Hindus believe. And this is, or what Marxists believe. And there, the differences between exposure and indoctrination that merely being exposed to different ideas does not constitute the same thing as the kind of nurture within a worldview that is provided by the school ethos. Um, I do think that, um, back to the Netherlands again, they do allow a variety of curricular materials and the enforcement mechanism is generally an assessment and in, in, in the best world, the assessment is content specific, but does not constitute the only qualifying mark of, of a child's course of, of study. So I do think we have to be mindful of the similitude of, and, and I, I would love to talk more about the content because I do work on this every day at our institute. Um, there are ways um, for governments to incentivize certain content that should be common to all of us, certain you know geography, certain components of American history, for example, without being oppressive. But Charlie, you may have other thoughts about that from it. I can give some examples, but. Well, I published a book over 20 years ago called The Ambiguous Race, which is about what happens when government funds faith-based schools or social agencies, right? And so I'm very much aware of the dangers that, that schools will begin to operate on the government model because they're receiving government money. But experience shows that in fact is not necessarily the case. And I give many examples in that book and, and other things I've, I've done since. An important distinction to make Ashley's point it seems to me, one I often use, is between the words instruction and education. Instruction is learning the three branches of government and the multiplication tables, if they still teach that, I'm not sure they, they do anymore, <laughs> and, uh, and a variety of other things that kids need to know in order to function in a particular society. And, and by the way, the things you need to know in this society and not the entirely the same things you need to know to function in, um, in Spain or much less in uh, Ukraine. Uh, different kinds of knowledge and skills are needed. 
That's instruction. Education is the forming of character, the forming of a worldview, the forming of deep convictions, the forming of the uh, civic virtues which are necessary for society to function well. I would strongly agree, uh, and I think with, with Neil, that those are not things, and I think with Ashley as well, that those are not things that government should be dictating. Government should leave it to, should have faith in the uh, concern of parents that their children will become decent, productive uh, members of society and not um, uh, prescribe what that precisely will mean in terms of the values and the worldview taught in the school. Vast differences possible there. We did a study when I was still at Boston University of seven, um, seven Islamic secondary schools across the United States because we wanted to know whether those schools, in fact, were teaching kids to resist American society to not be good citizens. We found to the contrary, they were deeply involved in helping helping kids become good uh, Muslim American citizens. And that, uh, and that this was, um, I think, part of, of the, the mission they saw as their fundamental values. So uh, maintain the distinction insofar as it's useful between instruction, that is the kinds of knowledge and skills we need, and education, the kinds of deep convictions children should be developing and, uh, and recognize government does have a role in relation to the first or society does have a role in relation to the first and that society needs to leave the parents and the educators they trust to determine the second. Mm -hmm. there, and and to, to Charlie's point, let me just add that there have been very few cases of egregious overreach by the state when you start to look at pluralistic countries, the one that's, I mean, there have been some, but the one that's the most um, famous, I suppose, occurred uh, in, in Canada, in which the Canadian, I think it was in Quebec, um, overrode, a, it, they required, they required sort of a comparative religion and ethics course, but schools were allowed to teach it according to their own values. And a quite left of center government took over and was mandating that that course be taught through a secular lens. Well, it went all the way up to the high court and the school won because it was an obvious broach of the school's values and norms. So again, the difference between exposure and indoctrination is, is it pertains. Great. I want to ask a question that goes uh, to Charles' points about instruction, um, and that that is where government should be involved. And the reason I think it's interesting is a lot of your examples you would think were fairly straightforward. For instance, how do you teach math? You would think would not be values laden, but increasingly we're seeing it is values laden. Uh, people asking, well, is the, our whole approach to math too Western centric? Um, are there other problems with whether or not it's culturally competent how we teach math? And I'm, 
I, it dovetails into another question that we got about actually the difficulty, at least we've had in this country, of establishing a common body of knowledge. And this anonymous questioner says the common body of knowledge is the sticking point. Common Core, and some of you may remember we had big fights over uh, Common Core, both what was in it and where it came from. You know, maybe 10 years ago, they was really at its peak. Uh, but the anonymous uh, questioner said Common Core was supposed to help with a, quote, common body of knowledge, unquote, but it has failed. Uh, it isn't so much an issue of common content, but an issue of who sets that common body of knowledge. In the U.S., we have many conflicting agendas. So how do you get even something that may seem straightforward as skills common, maybe in particular with such a, a diverse and just widespread country as the United States? Charlie, I don't know whether you want to go first with that or, or well, actually. Briefly, um, it's very important that these that, that, that these norms be set in terms of measurable outcomes, right? And that those me measurable out outcomes be uh, modestly restricted to those things upon which we can agree. And if one school wishes to, to teach mathematics from the point of view of um, traditional Greco-Roman norms, and another school wants to teach mathematics from the point of view of a counter cultural perspective or whatever, doesn't matter, provided, and what we hold the schools accountable for, is whether the kids can do the math. Now, it gets trickier with history, but even with history, we need to, in fact, settle upon those things that everyone needs to know, not what meaning they attach to the knowledge. And that meaning can differ from school to school, and parents provided that parents have a right, and this is what, what was not occurring in Loudoun County and other places, provided that parents have a right to decide which school they trust to teach their children history in a way that corresponds to their own convictions. So it's not government's responsibility to uh, uh, promote a different worldview, which is where the objections about um, critical race theory, whatever that is, and so forth, arise. It's because in those instances, a different worldview, a different way of understanding reality was being proposed. That's fine, provided parents have freely chosen uh, a school whose way of presenting uh, reality they support uh, by for their own children. I would concur on that. I would concur and say very concretely, first of all, the Common Core was not a curriculum. It really had very little to do with content. And in math, the content and the skills are very much aligned, but in their ELA, the skill of find the main idea becomes superficial if you're talking about something like Hamlet. I mean, it's just so far removed from a knowledge building curriculum. Um, and yet the point of it being con having been controversial is, um, is, is well taken. I think the most promising way forward around content that I could envision is something like an assessment for graduation in every subject or at the end of every year. And by the way, Florida has this in American history and civics, unusually in both of those as a requirement for graduation, where there are certain benchmarks 
that you'll be asked perhaps about geography, for example. But when students have studied, suppose in, in eighth grade, you have to study state history, the exam could say, based on your reading, how would you interpret this or that or the other? This is even easier in literature where, for example, kids could say an assessment, this is, I'm thinking, I mean, the AP history, AP literature is not that different from this based on your readings. Um, what are some of the, the which poetry reflects um, the ideal of beauty, something like that. So you can ask large intellectually rigorous questions that students can answer with their own curricular content. Um, and, and actually this is quite common to the, um, this, is, this is, let me let me say, this is what Louisiana as a state is working on with its assessments, curriculum aligned state assessments. And right now those assessments align with guidebooks, which is the most commonly used curriculum in ELA in Louisiana and Wit and Wisdom. And so, and even there, they're not asking kids. They're not asking kids to. Um, they're more open-ended extension questions, and that I think would be the way to go to avoid a control over curriculum per se. Wit and wisdom has come under fire in some places for being age inappropriate. So. Uh, kind of famously, I think it was in Tennessee, I can't remember, it was Williamson County, one of those where there yes. were major objections. I have I have reviewed Wit and Wisdom, and I think it's one of the most robust, intellectually challenging and satisfying curricula out there. Our institute reviews ELA and um, social studies curricula for knowledge building and quality and so forth. I think mm -hmm. Americans do have a heavy lift when in a countercultural movement towards knowledge building curriculum, full stop. Um, it's it. I could go into the details about that, but it's a it's another countercultural move. We do have a ton of questions, many on these issues. I just want to backtrack on one thing, though, but because we're sort of debating uh, how much is too much government intervention. Uh, just so I can fulfill the mandate of the title of this event, uh, Charlie, you talked a little bit about with Belgium leaving. Uh, do we actually have evidence of school choice in some way, allowing people to make decisions, reducing conflict? I think we do. Um, uh, I, I think a lot of what we've seen in the Netherlands and elsewhere uh, testifies to that. Um, I think in our own history, we see examples actually through a lot of even public schooling of where Catholics and Protestants are together. Sometimes they would split a district or split a time in school and something like that to better coexist. But just so we can hit the mandate um, and then we can go back to these other questions about how much pluralism is too much or however we want to frame it. Do, are there good examples of choice enabling diverse people to live uh, in greater harmony? Uh, sure. Well, let's go for it. Sure. Um, and and you've already mentioned examples of that. But I think what is a better way to put, put it is other examples where the social conflict around schooling, which, as you so valuably point out, is very common in the United States, where that social conflict 
has been significantly reduced, if not eliminated, through adopting pluralistic strategies? That's basically the question. And the answer to that is yes, there are many, many examples of that. And, and we, we could point to many instances, Spain in the 30s, um, France in the 1870s and 80s, again, the 1980s, in which uh, conflict over schooling was, was then uh, reduced and eliminated because government wisely said, we're not going to, um, we're not going to impose a uh, uniform um, uh, monopolistic system, but instead we're going to support the different ways in which parents wish their children to be educated. And I think certainly as far as families go, you look at what's happened in Florida in which there are at least 200,000 kids who are you know, low-income children attending private schools at, uh, for, through tax credits in a small voucher program. But also the charter sector has been quite successful in some of the districts, uh, Miami, for example. And when it gets to, I don't know if it's fair to talk about a tipping point, but when district superintendents embrace variability in the district sector. And so you've got um, places like um, Miami-Dade where oh, there's a lot of school, uh, private school scholarships, a lot of high quality charters, the same in San Antonio with their, um, they've, they've differentiated in meaningful ways amongst the district schools and you know, this is a, a, this can really, really benefit district schools. That's what the research on some of Florida's choice programs shows that there's, when no one sector dominates a given market, for want of a better word, all schools can benefit. It's not a given, but there are ways to make it more likely that all, all schools benefit. It can happen and it can, and it definitely reduces conflict. And I think I think more importantly than reducing the conflict, or maybe as important, is it habituates parents to making really, it habituates parents who haven't had choices to be able to exercise agency on behalf of their children. Now that is something that many American families haven't had. And yet it is the birthright of you know, in some ways, it's the most fundamental responsibility that parents have, and other countries make it quite easy. So it, it habituation really, really matters. Uh, You're muted, Charlie. Yeah, I want to be able to mention, want to be able to mention my, my one book that Cato actually published, which is about Eastern Europe, book which I wrote, I was commissioned by the U.S. Department of Education to look at how um, education systems in Eastern Europe were responding to the collapse of the communist governments. And what I found was that in a number of countries, uh, Poland was a particular example, that parents were, were building trust within systems where trust had largely been, been uh, lost because of the, the monopoly of communist governments and so forth. We're building trust through working together to create new 
alternative schools for their own children in ways which help to rebuild the fabric of society. And I've, I've argued ever since that we ought to be looking at those areas in our own society where trust has largely been, been uh, uh, wounded, uh, uh, lost, uh, particularly in the cities, but increasingly in the wider society as well. And to create the opportunities for groups of parents to come together on the basis of a shared conviction about what they want for their children is a way to rebuild that muscle which society needs to function adequately, the muscle of trust, cooperation, working together. Oh, may I just give another example of that? Sure, real fast. In Indianapolis, they have a lot of um, private school scholarships in Indiana, but they also have created in Indianapolis district community partnerships that are called iZone, you know, innovation schools that are actually a collaboration between neighborhoods and the district. And those have been wonderful ways to re-engage and hospitals have gotten involved and, and so forth. Yeah, I was going to say, I was, I'm both happy and disappointed that you got into trust because I have a question all teed up where I was going to ask about trust and I, it would seem like I had come up with this all on my own, but now I won't, uh, but I'm still going to ask it. Uh, I should also say that if you're looking behind me, almost certainly the book Charles just mentioned you're probably looking at the spine unless it's behind my head. Uh, you can't tell, but it's definitely back there. So an excellent book uh, book to read. Um, I think that the point uh, in particular that uh, Ashley brought up, but uh, Charles was talking about, I do think that there is a problem that at, in the absence of choice, parents actually haven't had much agency. They haven't had much ability to impact their child's education other than if you were wealthy enough to choose a home in a district but even then if you're choosing a public school you can't get religion in that public school you often have state control over what's taught so this idea of giving parents agency is important and now even though uh charles uh, anticipated the question of trust i think it's an important one john carver on twitter has asked several good questions and he says does this conversation not indicate that many have lost faith in the current public education system Basic assumption is that society has confidence, teachers know what they are doing, and it, has there been a problem of a lack of trust because you're essentially assigned to a school, you don't buy into the ethos of that school, it's not built around something that you have in common, and you, because you don't have any agency, you don't feel like you can have relationships based on trust, you have to have all these sort of outward rules and regulations. Is that a problem in our system that caused people to lose faith in it. Uh, whoever wants to go first, I'll let you. It'll be free for all. Ashley, you go first. You, I've said too much. You I've ahead. said too much. Um, I, I, I mean, I think it's maybe a little more complicated than that. I would say um, I do have a lot of faith in teachers, and I think you know, those of us who work across the sectors certainly see a lot of courage on the part of district leaders and teachers against some of the terrible odds of the last two years. But I think um, I would simply frame it as 
we are moving to a time when there's a more generous understanding of what public education could look like. So if we could envision it as not anti-district schools, but is there a better framework in which we can support schools and help them get better, but more importantly to the focus of our conversation, help parents exercise that agency um, in a whole new way. How can we enable that? And I will say this is not an easy thing. There have been a lot of studies about how long it can take for parents who have never had those choices to feel adept and to walk into that. I mean, Pat Wolf's school choice journey talks about how, how long, you know, a couple of years for parents to feel acculturated to that and to asking different questions. Parents need support um, along the way. And by the way, Aust Austria, the government, the municipalities of Austria have parent support um, offices around educational options so that first generation parents aren't just reliant on whatever social networks they happen to have. So there are a lot of complicated pieces to that. One of the things which I did when I was in government was to fund 21 parent information centers in cities across Massachusetts. And, and each of those cities adopted a policy with, with my, uh, you know, uh, that you could only enroll your children in a school or in a new level of schooling through going to the parent information center where you would be counseled by other parents who we hired we hired Cambodian speaking parents, Spanish speaking parents, Haitian Creole, whatever was the local need in order to counsel parents. Because as Ashley said, you can't just automatically assume that parents will be able to make good choices. But in effect, we, we, um, we said to the parents, you're gonna have to go through an educational process before your children do. And that educational process, you're going to have to hear about and think about the different choices that we're offering and, um, and decide which of those matches best with what your child's strengths are, what you want for your child. Um, and I ought to mention, by the way, all seven of my children went to the Boston Public Schools. And tomorrow morning, I'll be walking one of my grandsons to his first grade class in a Boston Public School. And tomorrow afternoon, I'll be picking up his sister from a kindergarten class in another Boston public school. Now, now notice you have a brother and sister who are going to two different schools. That's because their parents wanted different things for their children and saw those things available in two different schools. And I, I think it's you now obviously, um, you know, my kids are very much empowered by all kinds of things. But it's that kind of ability to, to make choices and make decisions, which is so different from passively being told because you live on this block, your child is gonna to go to that school. The social homogeneity of, the social homogeneity and you know, socioeconomic homogeneity of residential schooling is not lost on those of us in policy. So, Uh, this actually, and what the discussion you just had anticipated a question 
that I will not ask you to answer. I'll just sort of summarize what I think the answer is. Somebody said, why do you assume that parents have the wisdom to make ed good educational choices for children? And what I got from our last answer is, well, we don't assume that. In fact, an important thing, especially when we haven't had parents who've typically been empowered to make choices is they do need information. And I think that that is uh, one of the lessons we've learned from school choice over the last 20 or 30 years is that there is an information piece sometimes missing. Um, but as you know, Ashley mentioned, Patrick Wolf's work, we find that parents quickly become pretty savvy once they have that choice and they've been in part of a system that enables them to choose. They start to ask what experts would say are kind of the right questions uh, getting at the performance of a school. Um, so I'll just sort of answer that for the questioner. And now I have one from somebody who, you know, wait, tend wait, to wait. Get... oh, go ahead, Ashley. Yeah. I, I do want to say one more thing about what you just said, Neil. I think okay. that's flip side of that question slash comment is, and I'm going to quote one of Charlie's published articles, quote, it is an appropriate goal of public policy to make sure that there are no failing schools because parents get, all of us as parents can get attached to a school that really may not be giving our kids um, the academic background that they need. And so the, the, on the one side, we have to empower parents, give them the support they need and the, on the other hand, that's that is part of why the quality, the baseline of quality controls it measures is public assurance of quality matters. That opens up a can of worms, which I think we're going to get back to, uh, because uh, there's a fundamental question of who decides what quality is. But we have a question that is kind of hostile to. Uh, one of our premises and something we said earlier, and I want to make sure that question gets answered so people don't think I'm just handing out the softballs or just, you know, sort of uh, conservative libertarians or whatever arguing amongst themselves. Um, but so I want to make sure I get to this one. Um, I got to scroll. Next. Here we go. Uh, this is Michael Myers, who's from the New York or identifies being from the New York City Civil Rights Coalition. They said this discussion is unreal, almost bogus. Uh, busing disputes in Boston in the 70s over school busing, as the NAACP said, it's not the bus, it's us. Whites objected to blacks, quote unquote, invading, quote unquote, their schools. Those whites carried their, quote unquote, pitchforks, protesting school integration, not the bus, period. Um, I think it, it may be valuable to revisit some of the busing discussion and how this fits in. Um, I actually think that the question sort of agrees with our premise. It's, it, it wasn't actually the bus people object to, although did, people did object to long rides uh, and being subject to busing, but that it was an effort to sort of impose togetherness that cannot just be made by force. Does that sound right? And is there, how did choice factor into trying to overcome the question of not really the bus itself being the problem, but the effort to force togetherness. Well, that, that's why we went to choice. Uh, we realized that we could, in fact, use the power of, of parents to achieve the same integration goals uh, rather than working against parents. And I, I won't even attempt to discuss all the battles we went through in that process. But but in fact, as I mentioned, uh, by the time I left uh, government in 1991, well over a dozen Massachusetts cities were integrating their schools through choice. 
and well over 200,000 kids were attending Massachusetts urban public schools on the basis of choice. Uh, so that we made that the fundamental uh, mechanism by which uh, uh, kids would end up in the particular schools and and used it as a way to push schools to become more explicitly conscious about what they were trying to accomplish. Um, I think Ashley mentioned this earlier. It's extremely important to the quality of schooling that schools, all those working in a school, have a shared vision of what they're trying to accomplish. And that is possible only if, um, if, if in fact, a school is free to be be distinctive. Otherwise, we have um, kind of a, a lowest common denominator of trying to avoid making anybody upset with what you're doing. Instead, I, I use to tell school principals, I want your school to be a school that some parents would hate to have their children attend. And other parents would love to have their children attend the school. Don't try to please every parent because you're going to be an effective, distinctive, creative school only if you are very conscious about a particular educational vision which you're trying to carry out. I have to say also, Michael, it's good to hear, see your name. I know Michael Myers. Um, I do think the issue of race has been such a painful one in our country where the um, those of us who are, I, I would say, realistic, but also quite pessimistic about human nature would say there are, um, you know, the civil rights community itself is divided over choice mechanisms. So you have someone like Howard Fuller who because white leaders have controlled education, the majoritarian culture and so forth for so long, does not even want accountability in community schools that are external because they are they cannot help but be oppressive. And that that's a hard, you know, when it comes to the, the history of um, of racism in our country, it's it's hard to argue with that. You know, you have Minneapolis where there are culturally affirming charter schools that have been designed by the civil rights community. And I think that's a really important component of choice and something that we should, you know, bring into the mix. It's 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 a very, very important component of what school choice in, in, the, in the best sense of the word would enable for parents. Yes, well, and then that gets us back to sort of what we were talking before, and I'll ask another question, but we've had a number of questions like this. Uh, this comes from somebody uh, anonymous, but uh, so what body should set or would set the common body of knowledge that all government-funded schools would have to teach? E.D. Hirsch's core knowledge curriculum is excellent and as close to neutral as possible, but the government cannot keep its hands off it. It, it is unrealistic to assume that government will not interfere. I would add to that... Uh, based on the, what the discussion we just had in answer to the previous question, is actually I'm not sure that core knowledge is considered to be neutral. I think Edie Hirsch and people agree with Edie Hirsch see it as neutral, but of course, when core knowledge came out, there was a big debate about well, is it 
too Western civilization centric or Eurocentric? You know, is it all just sort of quote unquote dead white males that push everything else to the side? And that also leads to a central question. So if we want to have some sort of common body of knowledge or understanding that all schools that you would choose teach, who sets that? Because we've seen in places like Texas, this is one of my favorite examples because it, it goes right to uh, one of our basic problems of government control of education. You may recall, it might have been in 2010, one of the times the state board was trying to establish social studies standards. They got into a big debate is, is this country a democracy or a republic? Or is it a constitutional republic? And it was ironic that in a a body that was supposed to set the common standards because we supposedly live in a democracy, couldn't agree whether or not to say a common standard is that we live in a democracy. So it, I think this, who sets the standards as a, as a practical matter is a really big question. Well, it's Ashley and her colleagues who are really working on this. And so she ought to reply. But let me just first make the, the reservation that that those standards should not be defining everything that's going to be taught in a school. They ought to be a minimum of what is essential. And a number of European countries, which have, have, uh, have such national standards, have, however, a provision that, for example, a, uh, you know, a Steiner school, which has a distinctive uh, way, can propose a different uh, way of, of uh, addressing these things. And if that indicates similar, um, you know, rigor and so forth, then that can be approved as an alternative. But Ashley, you folks have really made a lot of progress on this. Yeah, I, and I, I have to say, I first of all, I do like Edie Hirsch's core knowledge and, ha and, and the Amplify version, which is now the one that most states or schools use is, is quite culturally affirming as well. It's not just dead white males, as it were. But I think I, I agree with the questioner that we are not going to have a common body of knowledge that everyone needs to have in the same way. And I, I, you know, the, the extreme version of this would have been France up until about 20 years ago, when, you know, the that the French minister of education could look at his watch every day and say, well, it's 1 p.m. Every student in eighth grade is studying X. No, that's I don't think that's at all realistic, especially nowadays. I think what would be viable would be certainly, you know, high level academic goals. So you will be learning, you know, students have to learn about U.S. history and these few topics within U.S. history in a given grade and have an assessment for stakes that allows them to use whatever textbooks they've been using to answer certain questions. And, and, and that, I think, is more realistic and probably more helpful. And then if a school wants to use a critical race theory approach to eighth grade civics or literature, they can. But there's the kids are still having to demonstrate that they can write well, they can think well, that they've actually read something coherent that they can write about. And suppose the topic is 18th century American history. A Marxist could have a different take on 
um, the 19th century, but the kids would, or 18th century, but the kids would still have to demonstrate knowledge of the major events. And any of us who've done comparative histor historiography know that you can look at the same event through different lenses. You can interpret it as capitalist depression, or you can interpret it as, you know, um, in a different in a different lens. So I'm not advocating for for a common textbook, if you will. Well, sort of related to this, um, it, you know. I guess the assumption is that if we were to have some commonality, it would be something that came through government. Um, but maybe it could come from Johns Hopkins. So Marilyn Muller asks, is JHU involved in distributing science of reading research slash evidence into practice in all district charter or private classrooms? And that actually reminded me, you know, that a lot of the reason we have sort of common American English is because of Webster, but not necessarily because Webster was in public schools, but because... People wanted Webster spellers and dictionaries, and we adopted a lot of that sort of from the bottom up. So is this something maybe that could happen without government saying, here's the common standards, and it would come from Johns Hopkins? Well, that's a really um, lovely question. And we are working on assessments at the state level with certain states. Um, but I do think that there are certain standards that certainly our institute tries to bring to our work in district, charter, and private school contexts around curriculum. And they are such questions as, do these texts that kids are reading in either subject, ELA or social studies, do these texts build coherent and specific knowledge about the world? If so, in which topics and which domains? And Sadly, we find that often there, there's no worthy knowledge in it at all. It's a kind of anodyne text that's written to teach certain disaggregated skills. So kids are not getting that knowledge base. We also ask questions about the quality. Does this text or this primary source have the capacity to um, evoke student emotion? Does it ask universal questions about the human condition, about suffering, about loss, about death? So um, about God. Um, so yes, we are very involved in this work and anyone who has a question about that, please write me offline anytime. I'm happy to talk to you about that. Great. Charles, did you have anything you want to add? If you wanted to, to shill for Johns Hopkins also feel free. Uh, but I had to, cause somebody asked a question. No, I, I, th I think what they're doing is very exciting, uh, and, uh, and very useful. We just need Great. funds to promote it. We just need funds to promote it. We don't, you know, we, we don't, our website, you know, we want to make our website much easier and user-friendly for people to navigate our knowledge maps. You know, we do have a trademarked evaluation of knowledge. Well, then we have you a might mention because I'm trying. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Ashley might, might mention that on the, on their website also, is our book that looks at how more than 60 different countries have managed this balancing between the right of parents to choose schools, the freedom of educators to create distinctive schools, and then the government accountability to ensure that every child gets an adequate education. And it's on the Johns Hopkins website that Ashley uh, manages, and, I, and it's free. So if you want to look up what Luxembourg does or what uh, Uruguay does, you can go right on there and, and find an essay written by a local expert 
about how they deal with these kinds of issues. Yes, thanks to Charlie what? and the European Association of Education Law and Policy. What's the title of that? Do you remember offhand? It's on global pluralism, but it's it's from Charlie's book on autonomy and accountability. What is the balance, right? Charlie, is that the title? Remind me. Yeah, go uh, balancing freedom, autonomy, and accountability in education. But if you look on online, on the global pluralism, I guess is is where. Yes, under our, where the Johns Hopkins. Right. All right. Hopefully everybody will be going there as soon as this is over. Not right now. Uh, and I should say that I wish I could help you with the mapping, but we have a common problem that I'm trying to get the public schooling battle map and I'll do the ding, ding, ding noise because I've promoted it again, but we're working on getting it more user-friendly. So check back soon. Uh, there'll be a lot more information on it and it'll be easier to use, I believe. Uh, but that then gets us to another question, which I hope I have not lost here it'll just take me one second so um let's see there's so many questions it can go oh, here we go um uh, and again it's it's related to uh the question of who sets the standards but it it, it also may be a, something of a peculiar american problem Martha Bradley Dorsey at the University of Arkansas says there's another structural issue in the U.S., the deeply ingrained government structure of public education. Local control cloaks the monopolistic segregated districts. State and federal control layer on funding equity and additional control. Any thoughts on this stubborn structure? And maybe where, from a pluralism standpoint, is the right place to have the government making decisions or a government making decisions about schooling? You know, one of the ironies, as, as OECD has found, is that individual American public schools have less autonomy than, for example, French public schools, which Ashley mentioned a minute ago, because of the local structure of things. A French school has to report to the ministry in Paris, but the, the ministry has thousands of schools to worry about, so they can't interfere. But but a local school district may have only three schools. And so the superintendent and the school committee can be constantly interfering and, uh, and telling them what they ought to do. And so there's actually in many ways less real autonomy among public schools, which is why it's so crucially important, again, that that that, that um, uh, stranglehold of, of the union and the uh, which in turn largely elects the local school board, uh, has on, on how distinctive, how coherent schools can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's certainly um, typical that the, at the state level, the legislature is where the real pluralization certainly takes place that enables local diverse delivery models. So, you know, it, it's, I've, I've, it, unless, as I mentioned briefly earlier, you have a really enterprising superintendent who's there for a long time, you know, the superintendents turn over very quickly, but someone who's persuaded that differentiating schools in meaningful ways from one another works well academically and civically. And, 
you know, there are certainly membership organizations that are helping um, Chiefs for Change. We work a lot with Chiefs for Change, but their members are often the ones leading the districts that are um, being innovative and and within the district. There are other things so that transportation, you know, transportation, um, for example, Baltimore City has secondary school choice among the district schools, but because there's not a meaningful transportation system, it's very difficult to make those choices meaningful. So there are no, there are non-school factors that matter here too. Well, we had a, a question again from somebody who's anonymous, but basically asks, um, how do we overcome the establishment that likes to block almost all these things? Um, they certainly tend to like to block school choice. Um, uh, that would include, I think, under a pluralist model that the establishment typically would tends to defend the status quo, which is you are assigned, you're, you're in a district, you're assigned to school based on your address. Um, there's some tension usually whether the status quo wants the state or the federal government telling them what to do. I think that depends on what level that person is at in the status quo. But is there a strategy? Have we seen it in other places that overcome the opposition to the people who you know, or ensconced in the system as is in order to get us to a more free and pluralist model. Charlie, you go ahead. Everyone with no, no, Ashley, you go ahead. Okay. All right, I'll start. Uh, I'll ask you. Oh, uh, I'll start. I'll Ashley. start. But Charlie has Charlie has so many historical examples. I mean, it, 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 you know. More recently in our country, I, I guess I think of places like even Illinois that actually had a sort of grand bargain in which the legislature approved the state's first tax credit plan and for low-income kids to attend private schools and take the state assessments. And they also provided additional funding for Chicago public schools. They changed the public school formula. So somehow creating the conditions for a a win-win and getting out of the zero-sum game approach of failing schools and slogan slinging and just saying, how can we create the conditions for all schools to become better? And so rhetorically and politically, I think that's probably has the most promise, but Charlie, you've probably got other examples. You say it wonderfully. We could also recognize how much the pandemic has in fact helped by throwing into sharp relief how inept large bureaucratic school systems are at responding to human needs of children. And um, and so I, I feel as though we're at a moment when, when a lot of things are possible that would have seemed very difficult or impossible three or four years ago. Let's see if I can take it back to a little history. We've only got about uh, three minutes left, so this will close it together. But uh, I was reading the recent compilation that came out of Abraham Kuyper's writings, which Charlie, you wrote the, in, I think the forward for the introduction. And of right. course, what's partially striking about that is it took many decades for him to get to, I don't think even ended up quite where he wanted to be. Um, I, it strikes me from my own experience and observation that 
any political change requires a whole lot of time setting the groundwork and the arguments, and then you need something like the pandemic to get major change. You've set the ground, you've explained it, and then something happens that causes people to look for what you've already explained. Is that what we've seen in other countries that have led to a change? Yes, 70 years in the Netherlands. It didn't happen overnight. Every social movement, every social movement takes time. It took decades for the United States school systems to move from being pluralistic to being uniform. It took political activism at the grassroots level, at the elite, at the elite political level. It took change circumstances of mass immigration. So it does require time. Great. Um, and that segues nicely into we don't have any more time uh, for this event. So I want to thank Ashley and Charlie uh, for joining us today and for all the great information that they shared and all the great ideas. I want to sh- thank everybody who is watching. Um, I also wanted to let you know that we're having another event tomorrow, also starting at noon, the status of homeschooling two years in the pandemic. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had a homeschooling panel of homeschoolers basically giving advice to a society, a society or a country or a world, really, where all of a sudden almost everybody was receiving education in their home. Now they're looking at, well, two years later, what have we learned about homeschooling? How has this affected homeschooling? So join us for that tomorrow. Again, it is at noon. Um, And with that, I thank everyone and I bid you adieu.